Okay, now we're going to open the Bible. So every week we open up the Bible, we study the scriptures together here at Grace Bible Church. Bible's our middle name. We believe that the Bible speaks to us with the authority and relevance of Jesus. So we want to open it up and see what he has to say. We're in the middle of a sermon series that we've called The Messed Up Church. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at at the really the hard passages in 1 Corinthians 5 through 10. Uh, and so that's been tough, man. I feel like we've been taking punches and been getting thrown around. I really appreciate Joey and Lucas handling hard passages last week. They're just all hard passages. And one of the things we like to do as we look through the series is we like to bring it back to the gospel and say, all the hard things that Jesus calls us to are because Jesus loves us. And that's where Paul starts in chapter one. And so today we're at kind of an intermission point. We're actually in the exact middle here at the end of chapter eight, we're in the exact middle of the book. So what I wanna do is have you turn to chapter one. I wanna go back, do an intermission, like say, okay, where did Paul start with all this? He started with the good news of Jesus. We're gonna go back to that, review our first principles that Paul starts us with in 1 Corinthians one. So if you have a Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter one. And the next weeks, we'll continue on with chapter nine, chapter 10. Then we'll head into some Christmas, some Advent sermons in December, okay? So can I kind of reviewing where we started this whole thing? First Corinthians chapter one. And guess what we're calling the sermon today? We're calling it the messed up church. The messed up church. So we're gonna look at First Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 2. First Corinthians is known by scholars to be one of the most difficult books and one of the most difficult cases of early Christians where they had all kinds of problems. We looked at a lot of those problems, greed and pride and division and selfishness and sexual immorality and all kinds of fighting between one another. And so what we've had to talk about throughout the series is as we talk about the messed up church, we're not just saying that's that messed up church over there. We're saying we're also the messed up church, right? Like, We all, all churches are messed up. We all need Jesus. And so I wanna share a little illustration with you before I read the text that I think will help set the direction for us, okay? Um, So 20 years ago, I was studying in seminary and we lived in an apartment in St. Louis. And there at the seminary, there was this wonderful thing we called the free store. And it was basically like a goodwill for the poor seminary students. They would donate, like random people would donate stuff to us. And sometimes we could go to the store and like actually find a good thing and, and take it. And it could be ours, right? And so I found a wok. Do y'all know what a wok is? A wok, it's like this round pan you can stir fry in. I was so excited, right? I'm not really a great cook. Uh, my wife can attest to this. She's a fantastic cook. Um, but I kind of get excited about weird things like this, okay? So we had a wok. And if you're going to use a wok, you have to season it. Y'all know what that means when you season a wok? It's kind of like what you do with a like a cast iron uh, skillet and stuff. You gotta like let the oil soak into it. So I, I poured a bunch of oil in it and I put it on the stove and my wife was off somewhere. So I was you know, doing it on my own. I think the internet existed at the time and I'd looked it up online, like how to season a wok, right? Um, and so I put it on the stove, I turned it on high. I was gonna get it going real hot and then turn it down, right? And kind of just let the oil simmer in the pan. So I turned it on high, I got it going. And then I had a, uh, a bedroom office at the other end of the apartment. It's a pretty big apartment with this long hallway. And so I walked back to my bedroom office. You know, I'm studying seminary and Hebrew and Greek and Bible and stuff. So I go back down the hallway. My office is like the bedroom and a desk, you know? So I'm at my little desk and I'm studying. And I kind of get all engrossed. I don't know if y'all know this about me, but I kind of have like a nutty professor temperament where I, I kind of get distracted sometimes. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm down here studying and 
really thinking about whatever I'm reading. And then I hear this loud beeping, beep, beep, beep. And I'm like, what is that? Like, I'd never heard this noise before. And I start to realize, oh, that's the smoke alarm. And so I, I turn around and I start to walk down the hallway. And as I'm walking down this long hallway, I see in the living room and kitchen area of the apartment, there's just thick black smoke, like three feet of the ceiling. It's like just right over my head, you know, it's just solid smoke. I'm like, oh no, this is bad. I, I must have forgotten the walk on the stove. So I, I head in there into the kitchen and it's on fire and there's soot and smoke everywhere. Fire alarm's going off. I take it outside. I hose it down. I, I get the fire put out. I, I turn off the stove. But then I've got like a serious mess that I've got to clean up, right? There's smoke and soot all over the sides of the walls in the kitchen and all over the vent and all over the stovetop, and I'm scrubbing everything down. Of course, there's smoke everywhere, so I open up all the doors and windows, and, and finally, after a while, you know, the smoke starts to get ventilated out. Finally, after maybe an hour, the smoke alarm stops going off, and it starts to feel like I've, like I've kind of done it. I've cleaned up the mess. I'm starting to feel kind of proud of myself, right? I should feel like an idiot because I almost burned the house down. Um, if you've been around our church long, you've heard many stories about me almost burning houses down. Um, but I'm like, look at me. I cleaned this up. My wife wasn't even here. I wonder if she'll even be able to tell, you know? <laughs> and so she comes home, and I'm going to tell her. I'm not going to be dishonest about it, right? But I kind of want to see if she notices first, you know? So I'm kind of just kind of waiting because I'm thinking, I, I did a pretty good job cleaning this up. I got all the smoke out. I opened the doors and windows. I sprayed some air freshener. Smells pretty good in here now. And she comes in and the house looks clean, but she immediately smells that something bad has happened, right? <laughs> she knows that something went wrong. And I tell her the story and she's sweet and she's gracious about it, right? But I think it's a perfect illustration of what religious people do often. Uh, as religious people, oftentimes we're getting our lives in order. We are cleaning up the mess, but what Paul is going to remind us of is we can never clean the whole mess up all by ourselves. We need Jesus. And so as religious people, we can easily forget our need of Jesus. And we can be like me and think, you know, I've cleaned it all up. And we have guests that come in the church and they come in and they're like, I, I smell something. I, I don't think this is as clean as you think it is, right? And so I just want to remind you, I'm going to kind of pick on religious people more than non-religious people today, but we both have a mess, and we both need to bring our mess to Jesus. And that's what the text is about. So religious people, we start cleaning it up, and then we kind of lie and act like we don't have a problem anymore. Because we're like, I got it halfway cleaned up. I'm doing pretty good. Look at how bad my neighbor is, right? But the other side is also equally dangerous, and Paul is warned against this a lot in 1 Corinthians. The other side is, I don't care about a mess. I'm happy to live in a mess, right? That's the non-religious side. It's just like, who cares? Messes are fine. Paul says, whichever side you come from, Jesus is the answer. Come to Jesus. Offer your mess to Jesus. So that's what we're going to see in the text. So we're going to read chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 18, through the end of the chapter. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we've got some black Bibles under the chairs. You can grab one of those. I think we're around page 952 or 53. You can look it up on your, your phone or your device. Use your own Bible. It'll be 1 Corinthians 1, verses 18 and following. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. 
Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I'm going to just pause there, verse 22 for a second. Do you see that? He's saying, none of us are wise enough, clean enough, good enough. None of us are a good enough Boy Scout to clean up our mess. We have to come to the foolishness of the proclamation of Jesus for us, a God who would come after us, a God who did not wait for us to clean up our own mess. But he came and he became a part of the mess. He took that mess upon his own shoulders on the cross. So verse 22, he consider, uh, continues. Verse 22, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your own calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Verse one and two of chapter two now, I'm just gonna read these last two verses here, beginning of chapter two. And I, when I came to you brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. First Corinthians is one of the longest letters of the New Testament. It's a letter that handles some of the most difficult problems in a New Testament church. One of the greatest numbers of different problems. And Paul says, I knew nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. He's, he's our hope. We're a mess uh, scholars often will refer to 1 Corinthians with this technical term. I don't know if you've heard this term before, but the, the technical theological term of a dumpster fire. Have you heard that before? Yeah. Or a hot mess, right? I think there's some special Greek words for that in the text. And again, we have to be tempted not to say that's, that's them. We're, we're all good. No, we're, we're a mess too. We need Jesus. So I'm going to pray that Jesus would meet us here, that in the moment of looking at the text, his spirit would join with us and, and apply his word to our hearts that we'd be open, we'd be receptive to it. So let me pray that he'd meet with us now. Jesus, we thank you that you speak to us through your word. And we thank you that you send your spirit. So we're not, we're not alone, we're not orphans, but you're with us. We pray that subjectively we would sense that even now, that we would know your spiritual presence here, um, that you'd take away our distractions you would give us the gift of open-mindedness and tender hearts that we would receive your word. Um, help us, Lord. We're a mess. We need you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, we're just kind of focusing on what we've made the theme for this whole series, which is the messed up church. And so the outline's pretty simple. Um, it's, a, it's kind of the storyline of the Bible. Um, I've got three points. The number one point is we have to admit we're messed up. Okay? That's step one. Admit you have a problem. Admit we're messed up. Point number two is we have to trust Jesus with our mess. Trust Jesus with our mess. 
And then point number three, help others with their mess. Help others with their mess. That's pretty simple, right? Pretty simple outline. You could say this is an overview of the entire book of 1 Corinthians, but I'm going to try to kind of stay mostly in chapter one as we bounce around to look at other parts of it. So number one, we have to admit that we're messed up. Admit we're messed up. Uh, Now, I was a uh, speech major in college, and this is like a basic thing you learn in Speech 101. It's like if you're going to give a speech or if you're in the military, you're going to give a brief, or if you're going to teach a lesson as a teacher, if you're a commander, uh, you want to define the problem up front, right? Like you want to admit the mess, define the problem before you can move to a solution. So that's kind of basic in in speaking. Um, It's also something we see in the literary world, right? Like a good story is a story that very quickly, in the beginning of the story, you see the conflict. You'll see the problem happening, right? And that'll help you kind of have buy-in into the story, like, okay, I'm going to be interested to see how this gets solved, right? That'll happen in chapter one, two, or three. Usually early on in a story, there'll be some kind of uh, conflict that's set up. But I think most importantly, for our purposes here, when we talk about admitting we're messed up, we see this in the world of recovery, Uh, In addiction recovery, 12-step programs, you've got to admit that you have a problem. And so as I said, I'm going to try to pick on religious people a lot. I want to pick on those of us that think we don't have a problem (laughs) and say, no, we have a problem, right? So this is this outline that we'll see in a lot of different places in the Bible. We'll see it in the prodigal of the, uh, or the parable of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15, where the famous one is the rebellious son, that runs away from his father and wakes up and comes back. But there's also this lesson about the good son who refuses to join in the father's party, who thinks he doesn't have a problem, right? So Jesus is pointing this out in Luke 15. We see it in Paul's arguments in Romans 1 through 3. In Romans 1 through 3, Paul says, man, we got these obvious non-religious people that have these serious problems. They're rebelling against God. They need Jesus. And then he turns on the religious people and he's like, hey, you need Jesus as well. You think you've cleaned up your mess, but I I smell something. There's a problem, and you also need to come to Jesus. So it comes to this climax in Romans 3.23, where it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us have it all cleaned up. All of us need Jesus. Whether we're living as good citizens or we're really struggling, we all have to admit that we have this mess. We have this problem. And so this is where Paul has taken us here as well. And so Paul has pointed out a lot of problems throughout 1 Corinthians. Like I said, in this section we've been in the last few months in chapters 5 through 10, there's been a lot of serious problems, right? Sexual immorality, there's been greed and division, there's been pride. Last week in chapter 8, we saw the demanding of rights. There was confusion about gender and marriage and relationships. They've had all kinds of problems that Paul was helping them to admit. Like, yeah, you've got a mess and you need to bring it to Jesus, He starts off way back in chapter one talking about division. Division was a major problem. They had disunity. The church had divided into factions. They kind of had different teams and they were like thinking somehow they're not so much okay by being a believer in Jesus, but their okayness came from being aligned with a certain leader. So Paul talks about this in chapter one, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree. So what does that imply? They're not agreeing, right? So he's like, brothers, agree. Will you agree and that there be no divisions among you? Be united in the same mind and have the same judgment. He goes on and he says, for it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. 
What I mean is each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or Peter, right? They'd kind of divide it up, and they're like, well, this is my favorite preacher. This is my favorite denomination. This is my favorite way of doing ministry. This is my preference of how we should really grow in the Christian life. And they, they'd divide it up into their different camps. Paul's like, no, you should be one. You should be united. And as we see the argument progress, we see that the roots of this division and this tribalism are often in pride, we want to say, I, I picked the right team. Look, I'm one of the good people. I, I stood up for this political issue or that political issue, right? Or I'm on this side or that side, or I go to this kind of church or that kind of church. And he's like, no, none of us have it together. Jesus is what gives us salvation, security, and hope. And if you can't clean up your own mess, that's humbling, right? Just having to ask Jesus for help, that's profoundly humbling. That's one of the biggest stumbling blocks about Christianity, is we're the people that say we need God's help. There's this confusion about what church is. A lot of people think, and a lot of churches are wrongly constituted this way. We think churches are the people that have their stuff together, and we've got it all cleaned up, and we're a gathering of the people that are clean and have everything together. No, churches are the gathering of people that admit the mess. That's, that's we've said for years at Grace Bible Church, like, that's the first step. If you want to be a member here, you, you got to admit you're a sinner, you failed to meet God's standards. You need God's grace. So we want to invite you into that as well. So Paul has challenged them on their division. He's challenged them on their pride. He's challenged them in 1 Corinthians on their sexual immorality. He's challenged them on their greed. We've talked about how Paul is hitting all sides, right? He's offending everybody. That's been how I've tried to do ministry, you know, not just offend one tribe. I want to offend all tribes, right? And say, Jesus is the only answer. And so that's what Paul is saying here. It gets into money stuff. They start wanting to show off how some of them have more money than others. We're going to see that in the new year in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians when they would have communion. They'd do communion in a weird way where they'd bring their own meals and then the rich people would like show off with extravagant meals and they'd have poor people that hadn't have any food. You know, he's like, what y'all are doing is not good. This is not how you should do church. You should be unified. You should be brothers and sisters. You should be on the same team. So we have to admit that we're a mess. We're a mess. We need Jesus. We don't want to glory in the mess, right? Paul is challenging them to move forward in a new way. So as I pick on you religious people, again, you're the most disciplined people in the room, right? The religious ones are the disciplined ones. You're, you're trying to clean up the mess. You're trying to make forward progress and follow Jesus. And I would say, amen, follow Jesus. Just don't fall into the deception that you can save yourself, that you can finish the task. You need to invite Jesus in the whole way. You can never bridge that gap. You need Jesus to take your sin. You need Jesus to give you resurrection life. Does he want you to obey him? Yes, he does. We just had to clarify again and again that we obey Jesus because he loves us. We do not obey Jesus to win his love. Do you hear that? Pause for just a second. This is the most easily missed thing about Christianity. We obey Jesus because he first loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we usually flip that around backwards and think, if I can just clean things up and obey him enough, then maybe he'll pay attention to me. And that's completely backwards. He has given you everything in Christ. Now follow him. Now obey him. I have an uh, illustration of this mess thing again. Um, I want to show you a picture. I found this picture online. The picture made me feel better because this wasn't at my house, but I did the same thing. So apparently other people do this too. <laughs> did you know that if you leave a cutting board in the uh, oven and you turn it on, the cutting board will melt, right? <laughs> it's a plastic cutting board. So years ago, we were having a missionary over for dinner at our house, 
Uh, my wife was at the store. I was at the house cleaning up, you know, sweeping the floor. You can't let a missionary see your messy house, right? You got to clean it all up. And so we were cleaning everything up and uh, my wife calls up and she's like, okay, I'm, I'm excited about this thing. I'm going to bake in the oven. I need you to preheat the oven, okay? And she knows I'm kind of slow. And so she gives me instructions and I'm, I'm trying to remember them all. And she says, you know, make sure you clear out the oven and then I need you to set the oven to preheat to, to 375. And because I'm not very good at details, I'm like, okay, I got it. 375, 375, 375, 375. And I go over to the oven, you know, I, I punch it up to 375, turn it on. I missed that little phrase she said, like, clean the stuff. There was some stuff in there. I had to get out, right? And so she comes home, and I'm pleased with myself. I've done what she asked. I swept the floor. I started the oven, and she opens the oven, and there's, like, melted goop everywhere. It's just, it's a mess. It's a huge mess. Um, And I was thinking about this. So one application for this sermon could be, y'all pray for my wife. Because she's been with me for 28 years now, and I'm a mess. Um, but really, there's a, bigger, there's a bigger lesson here. We're all a mess, and we need to confess to admit that mess. So the first step is to admit that you're a mess, to admit that you have a problem. We took it in, and uh, we took it to the oven repairman, talked to him about it. And apparently, when the plastic melts and fills every single crack of an oven, you can't really save the oven. It's gone. So yeah, we had to say goodbye to that oven. We did a little oven funeral. And I bought fast food for our missionary friends that night. Um, but here are the two applications, okay? These are classic Christian applications, but don't miss how, how like, important this is. This is like foundational Christianity. Admit that we're a mess, right? There's this Christian word we use, confess. Confess. In the Greek, homo legeo means to say the same thing as. So confession... That, that's taken on a traditional air in Christianity, right? It's kind of a traditional term we're used to, confession, and it means different things in different traditions. But in the Greek, it means literally to say the same thing as. So in 1 John chapter 1, we are to say the same thing as God says about our sin. Confess your sins to him. 1 John 1 is clear. You can either lie and say you don't have any sin, or you can admit your sin to Jesus, and he will be faithful and just, he'll forgive you. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of 1 John chapter 1. So those are the options. Lie, say there is no mess, right? And again, I've, I've tried to clarify, the religious way to lie is to say, I've cleaned it up so there's no mess anymore. And people are like, no, I, I smell something. <laughs> or the non-religious way that we deal with the mess is to be like, I do not believe in this category. There is no such thing as sin. There's no such thing as mess. We all just follow our own heart, do our own thing, right? Well, First John 1, he says, that's lying if you say you have no sin. Or you can confess it. You can admit the mess to God and he'll cleanse you and forgive you. So that's our relationship to God, admitting the mess to him. We also have to do it with other people. James 5.16 says we need to confess our sins one to another and pray for each other that we may be healed. So that's part of, of building a culture of grace and of gospel as a church community is where we begin to learn to be real with each other to not pretend, oh, I've got it together, and man, you need to clean up your act, and then maybe you can hang out with me once you've gotten your act cleaned up. That's not how Christians do life. We share life with one another and say, I'm struggling. Here's what the scripture says. I'm struggling to follow this. Will you, will you pray for me? I need your prayers. I need your help. And that's what it looks like to live the Christian life in a community of grace where we're admitting that we're a mess. Okay, second point is we have to trust Jesus with our mess. Trust Jesus with our mess. Jesus is the solution to our mess. 
So Paul has called out the mess all through 1 Corinthians. And as I said, the series the last few weeks, we've seen a lot of hard places where he's called out a lot of hard sins with greed and sexual immorality and money problems and pride problems and all these issues, standing up for your rights and not loving other people. Now he's gonna focus here again in chapter one on Jesus. Now I'd argue as we've moved through this series, he's gonna bring us back to Jesus in every chapter. I just wanted to go back to this foundation in chapter one. Chapter one, verse 21, he says, for since in the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Do you hear that? It's folly. It's folly to people. The gospel seems too good to be true. The wisdom of the world is like, just get your stuff together, right? Study some more wisdom books. Go to the self-help section at Barnes and Noble. Uh, Just kind of get your stuff together. You can clean things up. Paul says, no, no amount of wisdom can clean up our life. We have to entrust ourselves to the falling of this proclamation, this finished work of Jesus. That seems like folly to the world, but it's our hope. He says, it is wisdom for those who believe. It saves those who believe. Verse 22 says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. It's folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And then he goes into this whole little section about considering your calling. Now, think about this. In context, the Corinthian church were struggling with thinking they were special. They were better than other people. That was part of what they were struggling with. And he was like, hey, let me remind you guys. I knew you back in the day, right? We had our 30-year class reunion this weekend. There's nothing more humbling than getting together with people that knew you in high school, right? (laughs) You're like, yeah, I was kind of a loser in high school, and I'm maybe slightly more of a loser now. I don't know. It's hard to, you know, let you decide that. But there's something humbling about knowing people that knew you when you were a kid, when you were growing up, when you were in your hard, tough spots. Paul's bringing them back to that. Paul brings them back in verse 24. Those who are called, or verse, uh, I skipped, I got lost here. 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He's saying, Jesus is your sanctification. Jesus is the wisdom. Jesus is the redemption, not not who you were then and not who you are now. Verse 26 says, consider your calling. Consider how this all started. You weren't noble. You weren't great. You weren't important. Jesus didn't love you because you were so awesome. What makes us awesome is that Jesus loves us. And that's what we're being reminded of here in the text. And then chapter two, verse two, I love Chapter two, verse two, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, Paul has wargamed all kinds of situational issues with them, ethics, marriage, divorce, problems they're struggling with, money issues, how they gather, all this stuff. He's answering more questions now in this letter, but he's like, it's really essential that I I know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. Like that's the foundation. That's the cure. I I had a, 
this experience that happened actually several years ago. I'll just show you a picture here. I've got a picture of someone opening a door. How many of you are parents? Raise your hand if you're a parent. Some of you, okay. Or raise your hand if you've ever been around little children. Anybody ever been around little children? Okay. So this thing that happens with parents, teachers, uh, big brothers, big sisters, where sometimes you can hear something going on in the other room and you're like, oh no, there's a problem, right? The kids have gotten into trouble. You get a little nervous, you hear something weird. There's something even scarier, and that is when you don't hear anything. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, oh no, it's eerily quiet. <laughs> and so I had the picture of the, of the guy opening the door to go into the room to investigate, right? To go see what's happening. Um, and y'all have probably all experienced this kind of thing, but I had a friend years ago who was uh, sharing a story with me about his, his daughter. We've had this kind of thing happen. Everybody that's a parent has had this happen. Uh, you've got preschoolers that are potty trained, right? They know, they know how to do this whole thing. And you send them in the bathroom, um, but they're still young enough that they kind of don't know how to do with that either, you know? And it gets really bad really fast. I'm sorry, I don't mean to trigger parents here. I know I might be bringing up some, some hard memories, but my friend was sharing that one, one time his preschooler, he left her in the bathroom and then there was that eerie quiet. He was like, she's been in there a while and it's real quiet. I better check on her. And he opens the door and is just kind of assaulted uh, multi-sensory experience of mess, okay? I'm not going to be explicit, okay? <laughs> Parents, again, I've already triggered you. You know what he saw, but he was just shocked, right? And so he's got this little preschooler that's, that's made a mess that she cannot clean up, but she's determined that she's going to clean it up herself. And you know what happens when a preschooler that can't clean up a mess tries to clean up a mess? They make the mess a thousand times worse. And I share the story because my friend knew Jesus. He loved Jesus and he was growing in his faith. We were both young dads and he shared the story with me in tears because he's like, I know that's just like my relationship with my heavenly father. Like we have this experience where we think I, I can clean it up and we just make it worse and worse. And he's like, why didn't you call me? Right? Like, why didn't you ask me? As Christians, so often we run into this situation where we think, I've got this mess, I've created this mess, I gotta clean this mess up, I gotta take care of it. And again, please hear me. We don't glory in the mess. We don't wanna be a community that celebrates the mess, right? Jesus is calling us to live in a new way, to put, put those things aside, but we always need to start first with calling out to him for help. We need to trust Jesus with our mess, not trust our own abilities. We need to run to him first. Is he gonna invite us into the process? Are we going to do some work? Yeah, we're going to work. We're going to be a part of the process, but we got to run to him first. Trust Jesus with your mess. I don't know if you've run into this temptation before, but maybe life is just hard and you're just feeling ashamed. And you can, you can start to believe this idea where you think, you know what I need to do? I need to get my stuff together. And once I get my life cleaned up, I'll get my life in order. Then I can go back to church. Then I can show myself to Jesus and to the Christian community again, because I'll be cleaned up. Then I'll be presentable. But again, we're the community for people that are messed up. That's who we are. And of course, in reality, we're all at different levels, right? Some of us are doing better one week. Some of us are doing a bit, uh, worse another. But we're the community that admits that mess. I've even had this temptation. I work here, so I don't get to not show up, right? Like I just have to keep coming, even if I'm tempted not to come. But I feel this in my prayer life. I feel this distance that can set in sometimes. I start to think, man, if I can just kind of like get this part of my life in order, then I'll, 
then I'll want to talk to Jesus more. I don't really want to talk to him right now because I'm kind of embarrassed. I just want to encourage you, when I do that, it's wrong. When you do that, it's wrong. We just need to run to Jesus with the mess. Trust Jesus with your mess. Number one, he knows, right? Like he, he already knows it's there. You're not hiding it from him. But he loves to enter into the mess with us, right? Like Jesus became a mess for us. The second letter to Corinthians has this really bold statement. Second Corinthians chapter 5, 21 says, for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Jesus a mess to take our mess upon his shoulders to give us his resurrection life. So if you trust Jesus with your mess, you are clean indeed. He'll take the mess. He'll meet you in the mess. He'll walk with you through the mess. Trust Jesus with your mess. So before we move on, the the question for this would be, what are you tempted to trust instead of Jesus, right? So the point is, trust Jesus with your mess. What are you tempted to trust? I'm, I'm a problem solver, right? I'm tempted to read like five more books and say, well, if I just read five more books, I can master this problem. I can solve the problem on my own. And then I can talk to Jesus again as a winner, right? Instead of just run into Jesus with the mess. How about you? It might be relationships. If I just find the right relationship then I'll be content, then I'll be happy. Then I can kind of get my life in order and you, you might be continuing to run to relationships is the answer for the mess in your life. It might be money. If I can just make more money, if I can get more money saved and I won't end up like my folks were, you know, they struggled. I don't want to struggle like that. If I can, I can just sock away more money, then I'll be secure, right? It might be pills. It might just be fun. And I never had fun as a kid. I just need to have fun now. I didn't have fun the last 10 years. I just need to have fun. Once I have enough fun, then I'll be okay. Then maybe I could talk to Jesus. No, trust Jesus with the mess now. Run to Jesus with your problems now. Okay, the final point is that we help others with their mess. We help others with their mess. And this is a beautiful theme that starts to kind of blossom more and more in 1 Corinthians as the book proceeds. He starts off with this tribalism in chapter one. He talks about the division and then the middle section that we've been in in chapters five through 10, there's all this sin and immorality And a lot of that is also connected to their tribalism and to their pride. And so what Paul is going to continue to move them towards is, you know what? As you actually serve others in the name of Jesus, as you come come alongside other people and like Jesus, wash their feet and serve them and help them, uh, that's this humbling process where he's going to help you grow in greater dependence on him, right? And so as you serve other people, you don't wait until your mess is perfectly clean and say, now I've got my life together. Now I will serve you. No, we are broken people. My favorite quote on this, I don't know who said it, probably some famous monk or something, is we are poor beggars helping other poor beggars find bread. we like, I figured it out. Here's some bread. I'm hungry too. Come on, right? Like, that's what we're doing. We're not saying, I've got it all figured out and I've established this world-class bakery and now I will cook for you. I have all things solved. No, we're saying like, I'm, I'm hungry too. Come on, I found the solution. I'm lonely too, but Jesus loves me. Do you wanna meet Jesus? And so we're serving others as we're in process. Um, when I first started walking with Jesus, that's why I served other people I would serve, uh, like teach Sunday school or help out with kids at church or, you know, just do other things to help people. And I was just doing it because I was so amazed that Jesus loved me. Like he actually, Jesus wanted me in his family, right? I kind of felt like a spiritual orphan and God adopted me into his family through the gospel. It's like, man, I want to reach out and serve other people. 
Uh, and then what happened was I started doing more and doing more. Uh, started working for a church. Now I'm a pastor, right? These things evolve over time. But what happens is as you serve other people, there'll be a temptation that comes where you're going to be doing more and more, and then bigger messes will explode all over you, right? <laughs> and so whether that be other people's messes exploding all over you, and you're like, okay, forget this. I'm not helping people anymore. That's too much, right? Or just your own incompetence. I've found that one a lot, right? Like I realize I don't know what I'm doing. I'm leading this group of people, and I have no idea how I got here, right? Continue to trust Jesus with that mess as you are helping other people with their mess. It's an ongoing process. So we see this developing in the book of 1 Corinthians. So I just want to give you a couple of references that we haven't come to yet, but it's chapter 9 and chapter 14. So we'll look at chapter 9 the next two weeks. We'll look at this more in depth. But in chapter 9, Paul talks about giving up his own rights as an apostle. Paul was one of the greatest leaders in the New Testament church, and he was always humbling himself and saying, but I'm going to give up my rights and my preferences to serve you so that you can see Jesus better. We're going to see that real clearly in chapter 9 in the next two weeks. Here's one of the quotes from chapter 9, verse 19. For though I am free from all, right? He's saying, I'm free. I've got rights. I'm free from all, yet I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, as one outside the law, that I might win those. To the weak, I've become weak, Paul says, that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. Do you love that quote? You know what I love about that quote? Paul says, I become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. You know what's great about that quote is we almost always use that phrase negatively in our culture. You know, you can't be all things to all people, right? Have you ever heard that? People say that all the time. And like, like, you know, you're saying that Bible verse backwards, right? Like Paul said, we should be all things to all people. Now, there's a reality. When people say that as a proverb, there's a reality that you can't actually please every person. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about proactively giving up your rights to serve other people. To say, I could stand and demand my rights and I could fight selfishly for more of me but I'm going to lay that aside because I want to serve you so that you see more of Jesus. And so what I think this often translates into in the life of modern people in the church is we've been taught to kind of pursue our own preferences, pursue our own style, uh, be individuals, be unique people that do our own thing. And Paul's like, yeah, I don't worry about that. I'm not so worried about who I am and what my style and what my preferences are. I can go hang out with the Jews. I can hang out with the Greeks. I can hang, hang out with the weak and the strong. Paul's like, I can, I can run with all these different people because I want to serve them for the sake of Jesus. That's where Paul is moving his church. Y'all think about all the fights that churches have about like, we got to do it this way, right? We got to have this kind of music. We got to have this color carpet. We got to have this color paint, right? Just to help you work through that, we put some paint splotches on the back wall and we've left them for six months. I'm just trying to minister to your soul there. <laughs> just let these things be secondary. Um, we got to give up these secondary things and say, man, Jesus is what matters. Jesus wants me to obey him. He wants me to receive his grace and share that grace with other people. I grabbed a picture here of a guy who was serving others with his gift of barbering. This is a barber in Philly. And he's like, you know what? I figured out uh, that these guys need a haircut, right? 
And they feel so good and refreshed when they get a haircut. They can't afford it. I'm a barber. He just started giving guys haircuts, homeless people in Philadelphia. And it was such a blessing to them. I don't know if this guy's a believer, but he's embodying what we're talking about here, right? He's saying, I've, I've got this gift. I know how to cut hair. I can, I can give this blessing to people, right? It's this beautiful, beautiful thing. The rest of the story is some other guy with a bunch of money heard about what this guy was doing, heard that he didn't even have his own barbershop, and he bought him a barbershop. Isn't that crazy? Now, be careful. We don't, we don't serve so that God will give us the fancy thing, right? We serve because we're like, man, I know Jesus, and I want you to know Jesus too. And so we offer what we have in the name of Jesus. What do you have, and how can you serve those around you? You guys do this so well. So I just want to, first of all, praise you. I see this happening day in, day out. I was so blessed this weekend by our 30-year class reunion. We had a team of people that just worked like crazy just to serve and bless those of us that got together. So thank you for that. I appreciate y'all serving in that way. I see you serving in the community. I see those of you that work on post at Fort Hood or those of you that are teachers or work in the medical community or work in any area of life. I see you giving of yourself to serve and help others, to represent Jesus well, to help other people with their mess. So thank you for that. Um, some of you might be looking for ways to do this. Get to know your neighbors, meet them. Our, our prayer, uh, our elder that leads our prayer initiatives at the church, he showed this website to me that's kind of cool. Some of you might like it. Some of you might not like it. Um, it's called blesseveryhome.com. You could look it up. It just helps you to get to know your neighbors. Um, so basically there's all this public information you know, about who owns what and who lives where. And so it's just public information. It's on a website. So what they encourage you to do is just meet your neighbors, right? And say like, here are the Smiths. Here are the Browns, here are the Joneses, get to know them, pray for them, and meet them. Now, it might come across as creepy to you because you've got a website that's telling you your neighbor's names. That might be creepy. So if that's creepy to you, just go meet them, right? Like go bring them a bunt cake or something. But I'm just trying to give you tools to get to know your neighbors. Like, how can I bless you? How can I serve you? How can we help other people with a mess? We're, we're all struggling. And for those of you that have guilty consciences, I always have to reassure you, I'm not calling you to help every broken person in the city all at once right now, okay? Pray, Lord, Lord show me someone that I can help with their mess, okay? Just show me that, that next person. Show me a way I can move forward. We're always asking for more people to serve on a team here. We need folks to help with our preschool ministry. We need more of you to jump in. We're in a time of renewal as a church after the pandemic. Lots of new people coming in and we're just big enough to where everybody that comes in is like, hey, this church is big and kind of has things settled. No, we need your help, okay? <laughs> we need your help. Help us, please. We don't want to be too desperate. Um, but if you believe that Jesus has helped you, then join, join a team. Gather with us. Serve on one of these teams. In the back building, we've got the elementary students Heather Morris is doing a great job leading the ministry back there. She told me, if you just want to observe one week, you could just walk in and say, hey, I want to observe. She'll give you a tag. Uh, we won't let you like teach the kids right when you walk up, but you can observe, um, stand on the side and kind of figure it out and see what you think about it. Or you could talk to Sarah Crop about our preschool ministry. You can serve on a team. Uh, finally, we've got this foster care thing coming up in a few weeks. This is a great first step, right? Just come to the lunch and, and hear more information. Even if you're not ready to do the training yet, you can hear some of the initial training, kind of the initiation of, of how the system works, what it's about. You'll kind of maybe get a vision of how you can come along the fostering and adopting ministries in this community. Um, let me finish up with this one vision. Uh, we have this picture of Jesus healing people again and again in the New Testament. And what we recognize as we look at the Old Testament and the New Testament 
is there was an emphasis in the Old Testament on being clean, having our mess cleansed before God. And, and so I would argue that the story of the Old Testament sacrificial system and the story of Jesus is basically the same story. The story is we're a mess, God is pure, we have to make sacrifices to come into his presence. Others are sacrificed, right? In the Old Testament, it was these, these animal sacrifices. In the New Testament, though, this is clarified in a new way, right? So it's the same story. It just gets clearer in the New Testament. Jesus is now the perfect sacrifice. And so we also see this emphasis that kind of shifts from Old Testament to New Testament. In the Old Testament, there was this emphasis they had on staying clean, not getting tangled up in other people's messes. And so in the first century, if you were a leper, which meant you had this terrible skin disease, you had to ring a bell and walk on the other side of the street and say, unclean, unclean, because you didn't want your mess to get on other people. And all the good Jews that wanted to clean up their messes, they would stay away from you. They didn't want to get, they didn't want to get unclean. They didn't want those germs. Jesus would do this crazy thing where he would get up close to these people. He would love them. He would look them in the eye. He would touch them. And we see a reversal of that fear of the mess to a confidence in Jesus that God can clean up that mess. And so in Luke chapter five, we have a leper and he sees Jesus and he falls on his face and he starts begging Jesus and he says, Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. Lord, if you want to, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and he touches him. And he says, I want to be clean. And Jesus cleanses that leper. Says the leper was immediately cleansed. To bring this home, you may be thinking that you've got to clean yourself up before you can approach Jesus. What we see in the story is no, run to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I'm a mess. And if you want to, you could clean me. And know that Jesus reaches out his hand. He comes near to you. He says, I want to be clean. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us and you come near to us. We confess with the apostle Paul that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You did not wait for us to clean up our mess, but you entered into our mess. You took our mess upon your own shoulders. You loved us when nobody else did. You walk beside us when we feel all alone. You enable us to serve others in your name. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.